Hello, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast, where I share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. Today, my guest is Lauren Chiarello. Lauren was diagnosed with stage 2 Hodgkin lymphoma at the age of 23. She went through six months of chemotherapy, remission, but unfortunately, her disease recurred, and she required more chemotherapy and ultimately a stem cell transplant. That was nearly 10 years ago. Today, Lauren joins me to share her story about how beating cancer ignited her passion for fitness. She talks about how important movement is in daily life and how she's making that happen every day. We talked a lot about fertility and young adults with cancer on this episode, and I think you'll find some of the information really inspiring and really eye-opening and enlightening. Welcome, Lauren. I'm so excited to have you join me today. Can you please start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are? Hi, my name is Lauren Chirello, and I am the founder of Chi Chi Life. I am a two-time Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer survivor diagnosed at 23 years old, and it started with severely itchy skin, um, which landed me in the dermatologist office. And during that appointment, I also asked her about the lump about my collarbone that I felt like was getting bigger. Eventually, I went to a general practitioner to get chest x-ray, blood work, ear, nose, and throat doctor, had a neck surgeon that eventually led me to uh, my diagnosis of stage 2A Hodgkin's lymphoma. So that was with a needle biopsy and a tissue biopsy, and I had luckily one of the most curable types of cancers, and I initially, when I... received the information about my treatment. It was six months chemotherapy, um, 12 treatments on ABVD. And I just felt so grateful that I had the opportunity to um, get the treatment and that there was a course out there already set for me. A lot of cancers out there, they're, they're still working on treatments that can put people in remission. So it's, you know, I felt very grateful that there was a course of treatment. I went and got a second opinion. Um, You know, they agreed with the same, you know, six months chemotherapy. Luckily, that had been really just a standard course of treatment. And uh, yeah, from there, was in remission for six months, like I said. And then when I relapsed, um, you know, it's not very common to relapse. So I was even more surprised, I think, the second time because I just felt like, all right, like this is behind me. I'm going to keep going. You know, I was excited to take on the challenge of running a half marathon and fundraising for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society uh, with team and training. And, you know, had just built a really nice community. And luckily, you know, they were really all there to support me when I learned that I had relapsed. And, you know, I think when I learned about being in the hospital for that long, I just figured I had to take it one day at a time. I think, you know, knowing that there was really no choice, right? So this was, this is what had to be done. And I remember starting this day, you know, or at the beginning of this day, I should say, um, where I really kind of didn't know how I was going to do it. Um, And I just (laughs) had to keep moving one, you know, one day at a time and try to stay in the present moment as much as I could. And you know, to be candid with the high dose chemotherapy, I, I really suffered from high fevers. I had terrible throat sores. So I actually literally couldn't even swallow my own saliva. I was 
on, you know, morphine drip. And then, I mean, I even went home on liquid morphine after the hospital because mm -hmm. I was just in tremendous pain from the throat uh, sores. And that was from the radiation. Um, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it was hard in the hospital, but my mom stayed with me every night. Uh, you know, at that point I was 24 and then I actually celebrated my 25th birthday in the hospital. Um, and then my stem cell transplants just one week after my, my birthday. So my, you know, it's considered your second birthday. So my second birthday, um, it's just one week later. So April's a big celebration month for, for us. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, it was difficult and I did, you know, I don't really know how the heck I got through it to be honest, but I think just trying to keep as positive attitude as I could and then just really surrounding myself with people who were going to be there for me no matter what. I was just going to say that, you know, you sound so positive talking about it. And I want to know if it was really that, if you felt that positive during the time you were going through it. You know, I, I did. I mean, I'm not going to say that there were, there were definitely bad days and days that I was really down and sad and like literally couldn't even move out of my bed. Um, but I think I just felt this deep desire to, to fight and to live. And I knew that having a positive perspective would really help me. So, I mean, it was, I, I mean, and certainly with time, right, you can have a little bit more perspective and now being out 10 years. Um, but I, I still work with patients and their families. So I'm a patient of patient volunteer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center where I was treated. So I share my experience um, pretty frequently still. And I speak at nurse orientations and new employee orientations, sharing from the patient perspective. So, you know, they don't let you get into the program until you're a year out because they want you to have some space from your treatment. And, you know, for me, that was the first thing that I wanted to do because I had remembered folks that were there um, for me because that was one of the first questions I had for my doctor. I'm like, who can I talk to that went through this? I want to know what it you know, maybe like, right, everyone's very different. Mm -hmm. But what could I expect? And, you know, and seeing someone get on the other side of something really difficult, like a stem cell transplant, you know, I just wanted to have that positive force in my life and just be able to see, wow, I could do this too, you know, just one step at a time. Um, so, you know, overall, I would say yes, my, my perspective was quite positive. I mean, of course, I was sad. I lost my hair twice. I was in my early 20s. None of my friends really could quite grasp what this was like, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. it's different when, you know, I even think if I, you know, had, you know, had something, you know, a, a life challenge that happened now, you know, you just mature as you get older, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. I'm definitely more mature than I am, now, you know, now than I was when I was, you know, a year and a half after college. So I think, you know, a lot of people just didn't really know how to react. Uh, to be really honest, and and then some people just really shined and and came out from my past. Maybe we had drifted a bit in college, but we grew up together and really showed up and supported me uh, through this difficult time. And, you know, I think it's, I look back and I think, uh, you know, of how really going through this experience taught me uh, the power of community. It taught me how to show up for others, even when things are really difficult. It showed me how to be really open and honest about what's going on. I mean, no, you don't need to meet a stranger and like drop your life story on them. <laughs> but it's more about like, how can we really kind of be honest with ourselves and others about, you know, how life really is? Because there, there are a lot of difficult life experiences, not just going through cancer, but 
know, mental health struggles, loss, grief. Um, you know, gosh, it's like a really big list of different things that people struggle with and live with. So I think it just allowed me to really have an open heart um, and an open mind to just really accept other people um, really without judgment. It's so true. I mean, I think that, you know, it's not just the cancer diagnosis, like you said, but anything that puts everything into perspective, and it sounds cliche, but it really has merit to it. It does. It does, you know, and I mean, it's interesting. I, I understand that maybe not being so open is for everyone, but my thought was if I could just help one person by being really open and honest about, you know, what I went through, and it's really just a story of resilience. Uh, so when we can kind of just tap into the strength that is there, you know, and sometimes we don't always feel it, we may lose it for a little bit, but how can we, um, again, surround ourselves by people who can lift us up, um, you know, and maybe if we don't have such a strong support system, what other resources are there out there for us? And, and there really are a lot. I have a great little list that I put together uh, for young adult cancer resources on my uh, website. And I, you know, when I speak with patients, I'm like, let me send this to you because there's really a lot out there, but it's just a matter of getting directed toward it. Um, and especially, you know, even if you are in maybe more of a remote place, like I, like I said, I was in New York City. <laughs> it's a big, big city and has one of the best cancer hospitals in the world. Um, you know, but, you know, there are a lot of resources both online, but then even locally to, you know, try to check out and explore to help, you know, get people through a tough time. So I think that's a great, you know, thing that you're doing and you're serving as such an incredible resource for people. Let's talk a little bit about young people, young adults with cancer. So there's a lot of issues that younger, both men and women face if they get diagnosed with cancer in their 20s and 30s compared to in your 50s and 60s. Can we yep. talk about fertility and child, children and how, kind of what was, what framed your decisions around that? Mm, yeah. Well, thank you so much for bringing that up because fertility after cancer is something that I'm definitely on a mission to talk more about. Uh, and, you know, with that being said, I feel, again, extremely grateful that I was number one informed that my fertility could be compromised and that I had the time. So, mm -hmm. and the resources I received at the time, there was an organization called Fertile Hope. They were acquired by Livestrong, um, but they provided me a large grant to help me freeze my eggs. So I had the time, so this was actually a decade ago, literally, wow. February 2009, um, when it was still considered experimental. And I froze my eggs at Wow Cornell. Uh, that's where Memorial Stone Kettering recommended, and right down the street. And so I did that. Um, I was pretty, <laughs> that was tough, you know, because I wasn't dating anyone at the time, and I really hadn't thought about starting a family too much yet, but, you know, understanding that the chemotherapy I was going to get really could very likely put me in early menopause and, mm -hmm. and likely leave me, you know, totally infertile. Um, and, you know, I have friends that were on the same protocol um, who did go into early menopause, you know, and they, you know, one uh, has, uh, it was in a very, very serious relationship. And so they froze embryos, but like she can't carry these embryos. So they've been waiting for a surrogate. So just so interesting, you know, how everyone's experience can kind of take them on a different path. But what I will say is I was grateful that, you know, I had the opportunity to do that. And you do unfortunately have to pay a storage fee. 
uh, every year, which is pretty hefty. It's about thousand dollars a year there, and you know insurance doesn't cover it usually. And what was interesting though is that I learned right. I did this ten years ago, so that's a lot of money. And when I was sort of resurfacing this, and I'll get to it in a moment, someone said, "Oh, I froze my eggs, and they give cancer survivors five years free." And I was like, what? Like that didn't exist when I froze my eggs. So I actually just yesterday contacted the uh, fertility specialist and he said that they can honor it moving forward. So I felt like I just won the lottery. Uh, (laughs) That was really exciting that they said, you know, this wasn't in place when you froze your eggs, but I spoke with the administrators and we'll honor it, um, you know, from now moving forward. So I was so excited um, however, that brings us to today, uh, that we may be moving forward using those eggs. So, uh, you know, we'll see how it all shakes out. But I, um, so my husband, I got married three years ago and my husband and I started trying for family last January and we, um, figured we try on our own. Luckily I did get my periods back, you know, everything mm-hmm. was pretty regular. Not that that means that, you know, you're fertile necessarily, but at least it means, well, there's potential there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we conceived naturally on the third month and I couldn't believe it. I was just so excited, shocked, you know, I was like, Oh man, this is going to like, this is gonna be a long road. Like, you know, and so we were so excited. We found out the day after my birthday. So again, this month of April, like how special, right. And, uh, I didn't know this really, but you don't really go and see a doctor until you're about yep. seven weeks. <laughs> so, I was like, okay, I'm like ready to do all the things. And they were like, oh no, like we don't see you until you're like seven or eight weeks. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, so I waited and went in at seven weeks um, and they did an ultrasound. And unfortunately they didn't see anything in the uterus. So the doctor said, you know, it could be, it could have been a chemical pregnancy where you had a positive test, but then it didn't really land, right? Didn't kind of stay. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe the dates were off that you had. I was like, well, I'm like pretty organized. I got my little lap here. I, you know, I think my dates are okay. And then she said, you know, third, it could, you could have had it. You could have an ectopic pregnancy where the embryo implants out of the uterus. And so that was the first time I'd heard, uh, that that could be a potential. Um, you know, I thought maybe every, I thought everything was fine. I didn't have any symptoms of that, which can include just extreme pain, bleeding, I had had some spotting, which I had read that that was common. So I didn't really think anything of it Mm -hmm. and had never been pregnant before. So I'm like, I don't really know how I'm supposed to feel. Um, So she said, let's give it a few days and we'll do a transvaginal ultrasound, like, you know, full blown there on Monday. So actually the week, like almost a week, it was like a Wednesday to a Monday and I never left the hospital. I had to have an emergency surgery to remove the ectopic pregnancy in my right fallopian tube. And that was at eight weeks and that was last May. Um, So we have been trying naturally for the last nine months and haven't had any luck yet. So um, a few months ago, started to see my OBGYN and say, are there different tests we can do? Um, So we went through a series of blood tests. I had something called an HSG, uh, which is uh, they put a dye up the uterus that goes down the fallopian tubes. For me, it's just like the one tube uh, to see, is it functioning well, right? So with that, all looked good there. Um, My blood, you know, it's kind of, there's a lot that goes into it, so I I won't really go into all the details, but 
So there's, with that, um, you know, we kind of kept continuing on our way. And then in early April had appointments with two different reproductive endocrinologists, one who froze my eggs and then another who has a private practice. So um, we're in the midst of still exploring what all that will look like. Uh, we have some different options. Also took some additional tests um, to test, um, you know, semen analysis we had done, but semen culture to check for any bacteria. And then I actually just a couple weeks ago had an endometrial biopsy where they did find two bacteria um, that were heavy growth. So I'm right in the midst of um, two rounds of antibiotics. So, um, and then we'll retest after the cycle. So that's where we're kind of at with the fertility and babies and, um, you know, it's one step at a time. It's, it's been tough. Yeah. Fingers crossed for you. Thank you. Now, when you met your husband, you didn't know him right at the time of your diagnosis and treatment. No, I didn't. So how do you approach that? You know, how do you tell him that you are a cancer survivor? Yeah, well, so this is kind of interesting. So we met in Florida on the beach, basically. We, I was away for a bachelorette party. He was away for a bachelor party. And the groups kind of hung out that weekend. Now, we reconnected a year later and ended up dating then, but we've had some chats on the beach. We like, just kind of had this connection, right? Mm -hmm. And we were talking about just all sorts of things. And he had shared to me, with me um, that in college, he was um, misdiagnosed with leukemia. Wow. Very, like briefly though, like they basically were like, yeah, we think you do, we think you have it. And then like a handful of hours later, they were like, oh, actually you don't, <laughs> which is kind of a little scary to tell someone, Yeah, you know, so there was that. And uh, I don't know all the nuances to it, but he shared this with me and he goes, yeah, he's like, could you imagine like being in the room with your, you know, best friend? Cause he was in college. So the best friend came and his parents had, you know, driven up, you know, they're about 45 minutes away from his campus. And, uh, and I go, well, I actually can. <laughs> so um, it was, that's kind of how we, how we talked about it, actually. I was like, I, you know, at that, when we met, I was in remission for four years. So we met, uh, actually three years. We met in 2012 and I was done with treatment in 2009. So it was just like three years out of treatment. Um, so that was kind of, it came up right away in the beginning. So I know that that is a big topic for folks of like, when you disclose, how do you do it? How do you navigate dating? I never really dated too much, to be honest. Like when I came back um, to work, uh, I ended up actually dating someone at work. And I basically came back like bald with like the shortest haircut. And, you know, he'd like, it came up pretty quickly um, what had happened. And also we worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So I was working in the development department in fundraising and events. Um, so we met at work, you know, and obviously I was in working at a place um, that saved my life. You know, I was treated there the second time and it just, uh, yeah, pretty ironic. But so I know I don't really have any juicy stories on that. I mean, that was kind of a juicy story. That's a juicy story. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, it comes up a lot as people start to date after a cancer diagnosis and what that means. And, you know, you're going on a date and when do you break the news? And so, you know, there's a lot of loaded information with that. Yeah. Absolutely. There really is. Um, you know, and I think like what I would say to that, because I have spoken about this a little bit, is that, 
you know, you got to see what you feel comfortable with. And I know that's maybe like kind of a lame blanket statement, but it's just so different for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's different with who you're at, you know, and it's different. It's, it's how comfortable do you feel sharing? I mean, you certainly don't want to, I would presume be dating someone like, you know, six months or something, you know, and not mention it because, you know, at that point you're probably pretty serious, but you know, I think it's like in due time you sort of can, you know, just see what feels right, I guess would be the thing that I would say, which I know that's, you know, not really so specific, but I think it really is on a case by case basis. Exactly. So as you plan for a family and having children, does having this history of lymphoma, I mean, obviously factors in, but how much does it factor in? Do you think about it? Do you worry about what that means for your future and your children? Absolutely. I mean, I have had a lot of shame, you know, around this. I'm not going to deny that. It's been really challenging. I mean, I think, you know, had I not gone through this, you know, perhaps I wouldn't have had an ectopic pregnancy. Perhaps we would have already had a child by now, you know, I mean, but you really can only control what you can control. And you know, I think especially when it comes to having a family, I remember like now learning all that I know about like how you actually get pregnant. I'm like, how does anyone get pregnant? Like, it's really mind blowing to me, to be honest. <laughs> You're right. So, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit older as well, but you know, maybe someone who's 23 and like, you know, got the young magical eggs, but, um, you know, I'm happy that my eggs that I have frozen are young magical eggs. They're, you know, 24 years old. I have 24 of them. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's a lot. Yeah. It was like, thank goodness. Like there they are. And so, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, if, and when we need to use them, they'll be, you know, they'll be good to go. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I certainly do worry, but I think just in general, worrying is not very helpful at all. <laughs> it doesn't really get us to, you know, to where we want to be. I mean, like, I'm not going to say that I'm like in dial or think like everything is sunshine and roses, but I'm trying not to really dwell too much on what I can't control and the negative, um, you know, the negative things, because I don't know, life's too short to like live in that space. <laughs> that, that is very true. So you, you know, you mentioned the, the shaming is that blame that you're putting on yourself or it's external blame that you're feeling? Oh yeah. I would say myself. Yeah, no, definitely not external. Um, you know, my husband Russ is so incredibly supportive and we're, you know, kind of in it together, of course. Right. I mean, one would hope, um, (laughs) takes two to fit tango. And, uh, (laughs) and, uh, you know, it's, um, I guess just it's a feeling of just disappointment and frustration too. Um, I am also an event planner by trade and uh, a fitness instructor. So I think, you know, two things. One, the event planner in me, I really like to plan things. I like to, you know, have a set sort of course of how everything's going to go down. Um, and that's certainly not the case when we're in the midst of trying for this, you know. And so that I've learned acceptance. I've learned how to be more kind to myself. I'm not saying I'm kind to myself 24 seven, not the case, but I think it's a practice. And with uh, my fitness work, you know, it's my body changed since I had that surgery in May and it has not gotten back to how it was. I mean, is the reality and I, it's been really hard. So when, you know, as a instructor and teacher, it's can be difficult to lead others and hold space for people when you don't feel very good about yourself. 
Um, so that has been a true struggle. I mean, I luckily work with phenomenal students, um, both privately and in companies and in the studio. And my companies that I teach at, I go in and, you know, we usually sit up in like the conference room or they have an open floor plan type thing. And then my privates, you know, I've been working with them from anywhere from, you know, two to four plus years. So they know me well. Um, and I just feel very grateful because I feel like they are, they help me through this. Like they believe that they believe they look to me still to guide them and inspire them. And, um, you know, I feel very compelled to show up for them, you know, even when I'm not feeling my best. Let's talk about fitness. So what do you teach? How do you teach it? How does fitness affect your body image after cancer, after the surgery? Mm, well, fitness is life. <laughs> in my mind. Uh, if, if, if any listeners are not exercising, get on out there, do something, find something that you like, whether it be Zumba, you know, running, boot camps, yoga, try it all. That's what I really tell people. Um, you know, and it doesn't need to be so, you know, intense. Sometimes I feel like people put like so much pressure on it. And I think just if we can incorporate some movement in our day in some way, it's about bringing awareness to it. And I teach, um, I teach low impact methods. I teach Pilates bar and I teach TRX, which is a suspension trainer that hangs from the ceiling and you get to adjust the lengths and do all sorts of fun things with it. <laughs> but um, I really believe in building your core strength, uh, building spinal flexibility, mobility uh, to help with your posture, um, helps when you strengthen your core, you protect your low back, you protect really all of your spine, and you feel stronger. Um, you know, it helps you guide, uh, helps guide you through the day. So in all my classes, in all my sessions, I start with abdominal work, abdominal exercises. Um, and I end with them as well. So just to like sandwich it in there. <laughs> and um, I teach full body workouts. So I often use resistance bands as well. Um, I teach at a couple studios, um, not as much anymore because I've shifted um, into more of the privates and corporate wellness. And I still do work as a fundraising event planning consultant. So it's a little tricky balancing my time, but I teach at a studio called Flex Studios, which is in Union Square in Manhattan. And I teach at Exhale, which we have four locations in Manhattan and in Stamford, Connecticut, where um, we're both like my husband and I were in Ridgefield, Connecticut, and then also Manhattan part-time. So um, with that, um, I uh, am excited to share that I also started teaching at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center's Integrative Medicine Center, teaching aerobic strength training. Um, so there on Monday mornings, we have a class uh, called uh, Strong Bones, and we also have a class called Exercise for All. So this has been a bit of a new population for me to teach in the sense, um, you know, I've worked with cancer survivors before. Um, this is a, a quite an older population. So they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And um, some of the class is seated in a chair, um, but we use free weights. Um, and then the strong bones class, we also use a step in aerob uh, for our aerobics for mm -hmm. part of it for about 20 minutes of class. So I started teaching there about two months ago and um, starting with that, and then we'll start to work with people privately. But then also I'm working on getting funding to start a free young adult program uh, within the exercise community at the Integrated Medicine Center. And that will be classes, uh, panels and workshops and community events. 
So that's something I'm very passionate about. I don't really think it exists. It was something that I wished had existed when I was going through treatment. And I think it should be free. So I'm working really hard to bring that to life. Um, sometimes at big hospitals, things can take a bit of time. So I'm just trying to be really patient and, you know, take things step by step. And I'm very relentless. So it, I will make, I'm going to make sure it happens. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, we don't have enough in the way of exercise programs that are free, uh, let alone any exercise programs for our young patients that are going through treatment. I mean, it just doesn't exist. But what's you probably know this, but for some of the listeners, there's data that shows that you become extremely deconditioned during chemotherapy, no matter how fit you were when you started. Absolutely. I mean, it's your, your muscles atrophy uh, and you're just not moving very much. So it's like if you're not moving very much, your joints start to get stiff, um, you know, and the muscles just atrophy. You're not using them in the same way you did. So agree. I mean, you certainly, if you're fit before, you definitely have like a better recovery, I would say. But, um, you know, typically, I guess. But if, you know, a lot of times we see people with comorbidities, so they have different issues going on, right? Especially in um, older um, mm -hmm. populations, right? They may be extremely overweight and live with type 2 diabetes. Um, and then sometimes it could be hard too to um, navigate the side effects uh, both short-term and long-term that patients can experience peripheral, peripheral neuropathy. Sometimes patients can't and survivors can't feel their fingers or feel their feet very well. So they may, you know, not be able to hold a weight very well. They have balance issues. Um, you know, for me, I luckily don't have any lung or heart issues, but with the chemotherapies I received, um, you know, I'm still getting my heart checked um, because the rate of cardiotoxicity was really high. So I know to keep my heart healthy as much as I can, but some of it's like, you know, not necessarily even within your control. So like, I feel like I'm a very shiny unicorn with all the treatments that I had, because like I said, I have two friends that went through the same exact protocol as me. One had to have uh, her lung, she had like 40% lung capacity. She had to have a lung, her lungs would, one lung would collapse, collapse. She had to have a transplant. My other friend, the one who is the, um, who's trying to find a surrogate, she has heart issues and has had to have heart surgery. And it's been really, you know, these are real issues that people deal with. You know, yes, you're in remission and, you know, the cancer isn't there, but there's a lot of late effects. Um, you know, I'm at high risk for breast cancer. So I've been in a breast surveillance program. So my early 20s, I already had uh, mammograms, MRIs, checking to make sure uh, that, you know, a second cancer doesn't develop. So, I mean, these are real issues that people face, and especially when you're younger, right? Okay, maybe if you're, you know, 70, you know, maybe these things don't come up because maybe you're only living another 10 years or so, right? I mean, God bless, maybe longer, hopefully, but... Um, you know, it's just so it, this young adult population really does experience a lot of unique, um, you know, short-term and long-term effects. So let me pick your fitness brain a little bit. Yes. Um, so a couple of scenarios for you. So, you know, I see, I treat breast and gynecologic cancer. So I see women, you know, at all ages, very common scenario, 50, 60-year-old woman osteoporosis, does not want to take medication for bones. And I get that, you know, there's a lot of side effects with those medications and wants to really strengthen the bones naturally. So what are some good 
exercises, some good movements that you would recommend? Absolutely. So using your own body weight to create strength. So she doesn't even need any equipment, but I would encourage her to use equipment if she has it. Um, So what I would say is um, you want to do some balance exercises to help build your bone density um, or help at least not let it deteriorate anymore. So that could be literally as simple as, and which I teach this in one of my classes, literally just standing on one leg. Mm -hmm. 30 seconds. And you can have something nearby you if you feel like you might fall over. So hold on to the wall, hold on to a chair, start with 30 seconds. Um, and that standing leg will probably start to burn a little bit. And you would want to think about your posture as well, right? So you want to think of lifting the spine, using your abs to help support the spine. And then you also want to come up and out of your hip joint. So what can happen is when you're standing on the one leg, well, then you start to sink down into your hip joint. So you want to think of lifting up and out. And then imagine almost like there's a string attached to the top of the head and that you're standing very tall. So that's the position alignment. And with this one, there's no movement, right? You're just in a hold. So in yoga, they call it a drishti, which is your point of focus. So you can try to just focus on something on the wall, something in front of you. So I would encourage um, something as simple as that. And you can do that from 30 seconds to a minute. Um, And you can add movement as you progress, right? You do some leg extensions. Um, so the standing uh, leg would stay still, the leg that's up, you can bend and extend the leg, you can lower and lift the leg. Um, and when you add movement, uh, it's challenging, right? You're gonna have to pull in your abs more, you're gonna have to squeeze your standing glute more. Um, so that's a way to progress that. So helping to build, um, that will help the woman with osteoporosis. And I would also say is using um, light and heavy weights. You know, that could be anything from, two, three, four pounds for lighter, heavy, five, six, seven. You know, those are some starters. If the person's really has not exercised much at all, they may want to start with one pound and three pounds. And using um, those weights to um, help to build muscle mass, um, both, you know, biceps, triceps, um, shoulders. um, You know, there's really, it's kind of endless. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, there's certain movements that you would use for those sets of weights. Um, I would also encourage lunges. Okay. Front, um, a forward lunge where you just stand tall. You step the right foot forward. And then you want to make sure the knee stays over the ankle. The back knee is a little behind the hip. And then come right back up to stand. Now, someone with some balance issues or maybe if they're deconditioned, they may want to hold on to a chair or a wall as well. Because we don't want them to fall over. <laughs> um, and then, so you could do something like two sets of 10 on each leg. And um, you can also hold the lunge, right? So you could hold the position. Um, so it's an isometric hold to help build the muscle strength as well. Um, I would say squats. Please do squats every day of your life, basically. <laughs> it is a simple hip hinge movement. We use it all day long, getting in and out of chairs, getting on and off the toilet. So that is a movement that will stay with you for your entire life. So it could be simple as sitting on a chair and standing up 12 times. I think the CDC recommends if you're over, ee, I can't remember the age. I think it's over 60 and then it's 10 if you're over 70. I might be a little off on the years, but um, so you can do these chair sit-ups or you can just stand and do them in the air. So air squats. And for a squat, you want to make sure your feet are a little bit wider than the hips and then sit your hips back. Like you're literally sitting in a chair. You want to 
pull your abs in strong, lengthen your spine, and you want to have the weight a little bit more in your heels so you can activate your glutes and hamstrings. Awesome. That is really great advice. Okay, next scenario. Okay. <laughs> uh, someone who was very active, you know, running or going to classes or doing, you know, maybe even just walking with weights, gets diagnosed with cancer, you know, undergoes chemotherapy and is trying to recover after chemotherapy. You know, your bones are weaker after chemo, you're deconditioned. It's hard to come back to where you were how do you start? You know, you're not going to go from not doing anything to running a marathon. So what do you recommend? Yeah, I would say start small, mm -hmm. um, you know, and don't overdo it. And what I mean by that is maybe you start with just a simple walk. Maybe you start with like a couple minute jog. Maybe it's just a few minutes, like a half, a quarter of a mile, a couple minutes, and then you build up, you know, so it's just like anything. Um, when you're, you know, starting from, you know, maybe almost, you know, ground level there, um, you got to start small and it's incremental and you have to assess how you feel after. How does the body feel both right away after? How do you feel the next day? Is it totally debilitating? So, you know, if it is, maybe you're not quite ready to, to start running yet. You know, maybe it's going to be walking. Um, and same with, with the walking, you know, I would encourage people to just be really in tune with your body as much as you can. Um, and bring awareness to really how you feel. I mean, you can even literally do a, um, a like a range and a chart and do you know one zero to ten. How do I feel before I started? How do I feel during? And how do I feel after? And maybe how do I feel the day after? So you can really kind of assess. Um, you know, do I have more energy? Do am I in a lot of pain? Am I so sore? You know, I mean, so there's. I would just say start small and track it, like write it down. What are you doing? And then, you know, how can you just imp um, increase uh, your capacity and your ability, but in small increments? That's great advice. So let's end with a couple of questions. Okay. What is a day in the life like for you? And what do you eat? Everyone's going to want to know that. Oh, okay. Okay. So day in the life of every day looks pretty different, but it's a mix. I would say of private clients, corporate clients, um, some different meetings sometimes for some of my event and fundraising client work. Um, I do things like this, you know, right. I try to be really um, involved with sharing my story. So any you know, media like articles or interviews, things like that. So I do, that's part of what I do as well. Um, so every day looks a bit different, I would say. Um, and I also get exercise in for myself as much as I can. Um, I will say sometimes that could be tough, you know, even though I am a fitness instructor and teacher, it can be hard sometimes to get my own workouts in. So I work on that. Um, so in terms of eating, you know, I, I've been a vegetarian since I was 14. Okay. And I am a big believer in breakfast. I have a pretty big breakfast. Um, I have usually three eggs, um, sometimes egg whites right now. A naturopathic doctor that, that I went to said I should just eat the yolks right now. So I'm eating three full eggs and uh, usually eating it with a little like salsa to kind of add a little flavor. I do a slice of toast and sometimes like a couple strawberries or blueberries cut up fruit. I eat and drink a lot of smoothies. Um, so whether that be green smoothies, acai smoothies, and I usually make them at home. And I love snacks, so apples, almonds, um, 
definitely eat a lot of salads. Like I love doing spinach with two veggie burgers, some cherry tomatoes, snap peas, red peppers, and you know, just a little balsamic vinegar and oil. That's definitely a go-to. And um, I also will say I love pizza and I love ice cream. So those are in there as well. Um, not as frequent, but, and with the pizza, I love Amy's. Uh, it's, it's actually dairy-free. It's a roasted vegetable pizza. So I love that one. And for ice cream, um, Van Leeuwen's is really amazing. It's like handcrafted in Brooklyn and small pines. And small pines. So I try, but um, I've been trying to eat more of the, I love the Chloe's fruit pops. So mm -hmm. I've been trying to eat like fruit pops instead of the ice cream. So anyway, um, so I am, especially with summer coming around here, I've been on a little bit of an ice cream kick. So I'm like, uh-oh. Um, you go everything in moderation. So, um, yeah, I would say kind of, that's a little bit of a blend of all my favorite things. Awesome. Now, what would you say to someone who's newly diagnosed with cancer and, and may be struggling? Take one day at a time, write out a plan. Like I had a big calendar and I wrote down, okay, here are all my treatments. It may have not stayed exactly as it was, you know, depending on what comes up. But uh, I would say that, that helped me feel a little bit more in control. Mm -hmm. When I was in the hospital, I did keep like a little journal and I wrote down like, what were my blood counts? I did have to have a lot of blood transfusions and, you know, we were waiting for my blood counts to come back after the stem cell transplant, right? They're zero, zero, zero. So that day when it's point one is very exciting. Um, so that allowed also me to feel like I was staying in control of things. Um, and then I would say find community. So, you know, I mentioned hopefully there's, you know, some maybe family, friends in your life. But if there's not, there's a lot of great resources out there. Maybe like I can, you know, I don't, you, in the show notes, maybe we can put um, the link to the young adult. Um, yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of amazing support groups. There's um, First Ascent is an incredible organization that provides uh, outdoor adventure experiences for young adults living and post-treatment. Uh, that includes whitewater kayaking, rock climbing, surfing, all these amazing things that are completely free. Um, so there's just a lot of wonderful resources out there. So just trying to find a sense of community so you can be supported through it. And then also, wait, you know what? Asking for help. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's a lot of wonderful, you know, most hospitals and centers have social workers. Uh, so I would encourage you, you know, to feel free to reach out to someone if you're struggling. That's great advice. I think women especially don't ask for help nearly enough because they feel like they don't want to be bothering anyone, but you know, people want to help. Yeah, absolutely. They do. And they're, you know, a lot of times people don't know what to say, you know, they really don't. And if you give them something to do, they're like more than happy to do it. They're like, you gave me something to do. Great. Like, Oh, you need me to pick this up. Perfect. Done. And then I'll come by and bring it over, whatever it is. Um, you know, I, there's a great, uh, there's a site called Meal Train. I think it's called Meal Train. Is that right? Yep. Mm -hmm. So you can, you know, create a little schedule if you're, you know, struggling with prepping for meals for yourself. You know, can you maybe put that together and have friends, you know, drop their name in and bring you some goodies throughout the week? So, you know, having the, you know, courage to try to ask ask for help when you need it. So yeah. Is there anything else that you want to share with listeners? Ooh. Well, I do have a mantra. All right, let's hear it. <laughs> Squeeze the juice out of life every day. I love it. <laughs> Where can people find you on social media? 
Sure. So I'm pretty active on Instagram. So my handle there is Chichi Life NYC. So that's C H I C H I Life NYC. Um, I host a lot of fitness fundraisers in the city too. I have um, Central Park series coming up. We do combo workout. I te team up with fellow instructors and then we do a picnic after. So that would be fun to come out to. I have another retreat in Asheville, North Carolina happening in October, which should be really cool. So those are some ways to catch me. Um, and then, yeah, my website's the same, uh, chichilifenyc.com. Perfect. And I'll post that in the show notes for people. Cool. Thank you so much for joining me today. Your positivity and outlook is just, you know, really a brush, breath of fresh air. So thank you for sharing your story. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Lauren. One of the things that she said really stuck with me, and that is, this is a story of resilience. And I think there's really no better way to sum up this journey for anyone who has or is going through cancer treatment. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, if you are inspired by these stories, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple iTunes as that is the absolute best way for me to continue to grow the show and continue to speak with amazing women every week. You can find me at Dr. Toplinski on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for more podcast news and cancer news and updates as well as information on general healthy living and healthy lifestyles. Have a great weekend and I will see you all next week.